Mayo Clinic presents Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Welcome to the final episode of the 2023 calendar year for the show Always On EM, a podcast about emergency medicine from Mayo Clinic. My name is Venk Belenconda. I'm one of the two hosts of the show, which you probably know by now if you're joining. We hope that you're returning, but if you're brand new, that's exciting too, and we welcome you. It's been an amazing experience for Alex and me as we engaged with new listeners this year, learned about other practice styles, tested out some new recording and editing methods behind the scenes, and, and just became more comfortable in our style together. And we appreciate you joining us for that journey. Clinically, we learned so much, including about bleeding, in which we had several episodes, such as about GI bleeding, hematomas in general, and then blood transfusion. We learned about some very medicine-y topics like rheumatoid arthritis and renal failure, and some practical content, such as how to be more effective communicators, behaviors of exceptional people, and ways to conceptualize diagnostic errors or support patients and families who are lactating. There were obviously some very really niche topics, like about baclofen pumps, and even some electrically charged ones like about WBW and more. And we appreciate you coming back for all of these. And we will continue to try and bring you a great and rewarding experience in the next calendar year. Please, of course, do the deed and like, follow, and comment about our show right now before the year is out. And also reach out to us on Instagram or via email at alwaysonem at gmail.com. And with that, Let's talk about this episode. To close out the year, let's hear from Dr. Aaron Clausen, who is going to talk about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in the United States. Dr. Aaron Clausen is a star who is rising further in our department, and so it's a particular honor to introduce him as our esteemed emergency medicine grand round speaker for today. Dr. Clausen obtained a dual bachelor's degree from the University of Arizona in molecular biology and linguistics, and has obtained a master's degree in applied biomedical ethics from Arizona State University. He ob obtained his medical degree from the University of Arizona College of Medicine before joining Mayo Clinic for emergency medicine residency. During that time, he served as chief resident in his final year of training with us, and then completed a fellowship in emergency medical services at Regents Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota. Since returning after fellowship, he has taken on many different roles within the umbrella of EMS, including serving as the practice medical director for Mayo Clinic Ambulance Service, medical director for both Dodge Center Ambulance and Zombrota Area Ambulance, and he is also the director for the Emergency Medicine Residency's Longitudinal EMS Experience, which has received significant appreciation from our training program. Along his training journey, Dr. Clausen served his communities as a police officer, public safety dispatcher, and a victim advocate volunteer. His commitment to service has received numerous honors and recognitions, including receiving the Gold Humanism Honor, Educator of the Quarter by the EM Residency, and Citation of Excellence by the Chief of Police in Tucson, Arizona. He is already an accomplished educator with invitations to teach nationally, regionally, and of course locally on a variety of healthcare and societal topics pertaining to his many areas of expertise. In addition, he has published nine peer-reviewed publications. As you might expect, his pursuit of excellence in work also helps him to be an exceptional father, husband, colleague, and of course a friend. For these and many, many more reasons, we are honored to share his presentation with you all across the world. Take it away, Aaron. Thank you, Vanka. I appreciate the introduction. Um, so I'm going to get started. The topic I'm talking about today is out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, I'm going to talk about it uh, from a few different perspectives. One of the things that I'm going to cover, though, is how out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is a little bit different than in-hospital cardiac arrest, which is how it's described when people study it, out-of-hospital and in-hospital. But you and I and the, the, all, of, all of us that practice in the emergency department also know that in the emergency department is different than in the hospital. So there's different phases of care that have very different uh, treatment approaches to cardiac arrest, but also it turns out the patients that are being treated for cardiac arrest in those different phases are different. So that's one of the things we're going to talk about. How is that different and, and why that's important? Um, I'm going to talk about some of the current trends in treatment of cardiac arrest in the out-of-hospital environment, some things that are being done as the standard practice in some areas and some things that are being published um, and have been published recently and some kind of changes in that, that direction that I think you might find interesting and informative for your own approach to cardiac arrest management. But I'm also going to finish up by talking about how 
we do things at Mayo Clinic Ambulance Service in terms of cardiac arrest and uh, how some of that might impact your own practice in, in emergency medicine, especially when you're receiving these patients by, by, uh, that are transported to you by ambulance from the, uh, from the out-of-hospital environment. So to start us off, we're gonna talk about out-of-hospital versus in-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, we know, like I said, that in-hospital cardiac arrest is different than out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. We also know that ED cardiac arrest is different than in-the-hospital cardiac arrest on the floor, and it's different in some of the same ways. So inpatient, we know more about the patient. We They've been registered. Somebody's done an H&P. They've probably documented that. They've probably put in orders. We know some things about the patient that sometimes we know a little bit about in the emergency department, but we, may, we likely know far less in the emergency department than in the hospital. And some of those differences are, are the same as the out, in the outpatient environment. Um, and so I'm going to show, this is just a video. I don't have any audio for this, so you're not missing anything. This is a video that we recorded while we were training Rochester Fire Department and Mayo Clinic Ambulance in preparation for an, some algorithm changes that, or some process changes that we made in ventricular fibrillation, cardiac arrest that were uh, tied to transport to the emergency department for possible ECMO cannulation. The point of this video and the reason I'm showing it now is not so much the ECMO conversation, which is a very interesting and worthwhile conversation that we should definitely continue to have, but more to show what types of things get done in the out-of-hospital environment and what the out-of-hospital environment looks like. So this particular recording was done at the operation at the City Emergency Operations Center in a big conference room with all the chairs moved out of the way and well lit. Already some things that are very different than the average out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And for those of you who may have responded to out-of-hospital cardiac arrests in, in your day, um, you may have seen it happen in environments as diverse as some of the places I've been. I've been to um, an, a cardiac arrest in an attic, uh, been to a cardiac arrest in a, in a hallway um, where the hallway was, you know, things stacked up. So there was only a, you know, a few inches on either side of the patient and no way to really access them. You have to pull them out. I've been to a cardiac arrest outside of a major convention center with crowds of people walking around and, um, and so forth. Um, and, and a variety of other places. And those are just the interesting places I've been to cardiac arrests and find an EMS professional and ask them where they've treated a cardiac arrest and you'll find a variety of interesting answers. Uh, now think about the difference between this patient when they, they arrived and started treating the patient on the floor of wherever this simulation might've been set. Um, maybe in a person's home, you might know a little bit, whatever the family members are able to tell you, uh, but no treatments have been underway. Maybe there's some chest compressions, maybe there's some dispatch assisted CPR that's going on, but for, to a large degree, the paramedics and EMTs and first responders that are arriving to these calls, they have to start from no interventions. They have to obtain their own access. Uh, they have to draw up their own medications. They have to administer those medications. All of the equipment that they brought with them, th that, that they have available to them, is whatever they were able to carry with them to the patient. And then they have to carry it with them when they leave, which if we watch to the end of this video, you'll see them collect up and move all that uh, all that stuff away. And um, and if you think about what that looks like as compared to the emergency department, where even in some of our lower resourced emergency departments, you usually have several people. You usually have at least a, a physician, physician assistant, nurse practitioner. You have a registered nurse or multiple. Um, in our emergency department, we have several of both of those categories. And then we also have respiratory therapists. We have pharmacists. We have patient care technicians and patient care assistants that are in the room. And we have a variety of other resources that we can call down a full pharmacy that's stocked nearby, a big cart with all sorts of medications that you may or may not even need for a cardiac arrest that just gets wheeled into the room. And so the resources are enormous compared to uh, in the emergency department or in the hospital as compared to what happens out of the hospital. Now, I tell all of you that in part so that all of the people in, in EMS can feel proud about what they do and the, and the impressive job that they do. But also I, I tell you that to, to think about what it really means when we talk about success rates and survival rates for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The logistics and the training and the practice and everything that goes into that. Um, and then it also starts to help you understand why we do things a little bit the way that we do in the out-of-hospital environment. So in the emergency department, we, you know, we treat our cardiac arrest however we do. And I'll talk a little bit more 
about how we do that later. But um, we, we treat it by thinking through what, in an ideal world, what's our differential? What things could be causing this? What are the reversible causes? What interventions can we do? And we try to do all of the, we try to do all of those things. We're doing the same thing in the out-of-hospital environment, but we also recognize that the logistics of being able to offer lots and lots of different things to these patients in a timely fashion is, is not very, it's not very extensive, the, the ability to do that. And so we, we focus um, especially when uh, with early changes and early protocols for out-hospital cardiac arrest on the patients who might have the best chances of survival. And we all know who those are, um, those of us in emergency medicine, we, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in some subsequent slides. But um, that's why a lot of the work that we do in pre-hospital or out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is focused on the patients who have the best chance of survival. There are some patients that will survive with things like asystole. There are some patients that will survive with things like an unwitnessed cardiac arrest. But compared to the patients who ha that have a witnessed ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia, a shockable cardiac arrest, the chances of survival are, are much higher in that latter group. And so that's where we do, we get a lot of uh, our focus in uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So they're just about to um, move this patient. They're about to lift and carry the patient out. I'll let that finish and then I'll move on to the onto the next slide here. And you can see that area where it was just a patient before is now an em empty uh, empty spot. Uh, the, they left one of the fire department's bags behind, but they won't be riding in the ambulance so they can come back and get it. But all of that in about five minutes from first chest compressions to transporting them out. And I don't know if you all noticed, but they put in a superglottic airway. They got IO access. They administered lidocaine. Uh, they put on a uh, Lucas device and they delivered several defibrillations all in that amount of time. And so that now I'll admit that that was a little bit drilled and practiced and it was filmed in such a way as to be used for training. And so a little bit artificial, but when we would have, when we had people doing this for their first go through, they would routinely be doing this in six to eight minutes to do all of those things, which I think is, is a, imp, uh, impressive. So here's some raw data. Um, there's some problems with this data, but the point of this data is really to give you a sense of how often we're encountering cardiac arrest in the out-of-hospital environment. So the uh, on the left here, uh, well, the, the, this, these um, are died in phase, meaning died either in the pre-hospital environment or died in the emergency department, depending on the source of the data. And then survived phase would be just was transported to the emergency department or survived to hospital admission. Um, this has no, there's no data on here about survival to discharge or neurologically intact, which I think are far more important. So this is just to give you a sense of our, our numbers. So the smaller columns are ED data from 2021 and 2020. 22, patients who had cardiac arrest as their primary um, uh, di uh, diagnosis in EPIC for those years, as compared to our CARES database data for Mayo Clinic Ambulance Service. So this is all Mayo Clinic Ambulance Service sites in Minnesota, what we submit to the state to show how often we respond to cardiac arrests and what our outcomes are. And you can see that in 2021, we went to 466, and in 2022, went to 521 cardiac arrests. And those are only the cardiac arrests where we did some treatment. So this would not be patients we arrived and pronounced them deceased immediately without any treatment. These are people for whom we attempted a resuscitation. And so compared to the about 130 that we see in our emergency department here, I think it's a, uh, when I when I first got exposed to the out-of-hospital environment and saw how prevalent out-of-hospital cardiac arrest was there as compared to in the hospital, I was staggered. In my one-year EMS fellowship at Regents Hospital, I saw and treated more patients in cardiac arrest than I did throughout my entire three-year emergency medicine residency here. And now admittedly, a lot of those patients had terrible outcomes because they had a very poor starting point for our treatment, unwitnessed cardiac arrest, unclear how long they were down for. They may have been a shockable arrest who had already devolved into asystole, things like that. So, um, but the, the number of cardiac arrests we see in the out-of-hospital environment is a high number. So now if we drill down a little bit on, um, if we drill down a little bit on what happens to those cardiac arrest patients? What are the actual outcomes for our cardiac arrest patients in the out-of-hospital environment? This is again pulled from our um, CARES database. This is 2022 data. Um, and if, if you break this down, first of all, 
about half of our patients here are unwitnessed cardiac arrests. And already those folks have a very poor prognosis. That was about 260 patients. About 5% of them were discharged from the hospital alive. So very poor prognosis for, for unwitnessed. This next pie piece up here on the top is the witnessed arrests, but they're not VF or VFibs or, or VTAC, so non-shockable cardiac arrests. Those ones had a similarly poor prognosis. This was about 163 patients, uh, just under 5% were discharged alive from the hospital. So again, very poor prognosis. This last pie chart here that you can see, those are the witnessed uh, VF patients, and I have them broken down in the small pie chart off to the side, which shows that um, just under half of those patients, about 43% of those patients are discharged alive. And actually, 38% um, of them in that year were discharged with a CPC one or two, so favorable neurologic status. So you can see that already just looking at this data, it's a minority of our cardiac arrests, but those witnessed VF patients are those that have the highest chances of survival. And that's why this ends up being the biggest focus of our um, of research and innovation in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, uh, I think a lot of the focus is on trying to target this branch here, this 10% overall that um, end up dying and not, not surviving from their cardiac arrest. And um, uh, but have a favorable condition to begin with. And that's part of what makes some of the research a little bit difficult. And so we'll talk a little bit, uh, let's talk a little bit now about challenges in cardiac arrest research in general and out of hospital cardiac arrest in particular. So with any research that we do, the ideal would be to understand from a physiologic mechanistic basis, bench science kind of level, what's actually happening with our patients and then know what to do, which we all know is totally impossible in, uh, in with the complexity of the patients that we're treating. That's why we got into medicine instead of PhD science programs, right? We, we know we have to make decisions with limited information, but the same problems, those problems persist when we start talking about uh, our research. So Anytime you read a research paper, you should be looking to see what confounders they identified and considered and corrected for. And now oftentimes, like I showed on the previous slide, the presenting rhythm, whether the patient was witnessed, um, those sorts of confounders are oftentimes included and, and, uh, and accounted for. But there's lots of confounders that are by necessity ignored, things that we can't collect as far as information in an organized and reliable way in order to be certain that we understand uh, where this patient was starting from and therefore why their outcome was what it was. Is is a particular intervention that we're studying the reason this patient is alive or is it just because that patient happened to be next door to the fire station where the ambulance is and they had a five second response time as compared to the patient who was three blocks down and 10 stories up and had a 15 minute response time. And those sorts of things, to some extent, we can record response times, but this is, that's actually a good example of how it can be very difficult. Um, in our own system, we can record meticulously through dispatch records when an ambulance arrived at scene. We can It's marked ambulance on scene, but that means an ambulance parked outside the, the patient's residence, for example. And if that is an apartment building, that might mean there's access issues, an elevator ride, finding the right apartment, gaining access. All of those, those things can be a delay, and it's difficult or impossible to collect accurate at the bedside information in the same way that we can from our computer-aided dispatch system that will record when a, when a paramedic arrives. So all of these studies have those types of confounders. That's just one tiny example related to the response time. But every phase of the care of a cardiac arrest patient, I would argue, even in the emergency department to some extent, is has valuable pieces of information that could have an impact on the patient, but for whatever reason, aren't collected and included in any research. Now that happens with everything. And that's why we do things like randomized controlled trials. You do a randomized controlled trial where you have a large enough number, you should be able to overcome the biases that are introduced by the confounders that you don't know about, or you can't record. But now that means that we need to get very large numbers of patients that are treated in very similar ways. But that introduces the next two problems on this slide, the geographic variation, which can mean if you want to get a large number of cardiac arrest patients, you need to include a large number of agencies responding in a large number of areas with different travel times, different policies, uh, different response configurations, different types of crew members on board, perhaps different equipment. All of those sorts of things add additional confounders that probably can't be included. 
Another way to do it would be to study a smaller agency over a long period of time, or say a large agency over a long period of time. And now you end up with changes that happen just over time. New interventions, new equipment. Hey, we changed from the Combitube to the King Airway to the iGel over this time. And now how much of an impact does that have on our patients over time? Does that interfere with our study? One of the studies I'm going to talk about a little bit later was ended early due to feasibility related to COVID. And so even you know in the era of a pandemic, that's going to have a big impact on your research. But even without that, changes in population, changes in the pathology, change, all of these sorts of things can impact these studies. And so this is what really makes it difficult to draw conclusions from uh, cardiac arrest research um, in general. Um, and pre-hospital research, I would argue in particular. One of the one of the studies that I like to talk about uh, to our EMS fellowship is a major airway uh, systematic review that was undertaken uh, in 2022. And so this is the publication in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care, which is the publication of the National Association of EMS Physicians. Um, they did a great job. They found 100 studies, uh, almost 100 studies, over a half million patients were included, and they were trying to compare uh, bag valve mask ventilation to supraglottic airway to endotracheal intubation to see which of these strategies is best for out-of-hospital airway management. They looked mostly at cardiac arrest, but there's trauma studies in there. There's RSI type studies where it's neither cardiac arrest nor trauma necessarily. They tried to include as many as they could. And this is what they came up with. So first of all, with the endpoint of survival for uh, adults and pediatrics in cardiac arrest or trauma, they found that if you lump supraglottic airway and endotracheal intubation together as advanced airways, there was no significant benefit compared to bag valve mask ventilation. So that's, that's helpful. It doesn't really tell me what I should do with these patients, but there's some degree of equivalence there. They also looked at uh, neuro function for peds, peds in cardiac arrest, and they actually found the same thing. So not a not a lot of difference if you compare advanced versus bag valve mask uh, airway management. What about neurologic function for adults with cardiac arrest? Well, here they found something different. They found that endotracheal intubation versus bag valve mask uh, ventilation was similar. And they found that uh, if you were to compare supraglottic airway with bag valve mask or endotracheal intubation, actually it favors supraglottic airway somewhat. So there is, there is something you can draw from this. Maybe a supraglottic airway is a little bit better for neurologic, uh, neurologic intact survival for adults in cardiac arrest. So we've learned, we've learned one uh, thing. We also looked at uh, return of spontaneous circulation in adults and pediatrics in cardiac arrest. Advanced airway versus bag valve is similar. We looked at ROSC for um, for pediatric patients, and uh, it and and again didn't learn a whole lot new. Similar supraglottic versus endotracheal intubation. Uh, and if you look at uh, ROSC for adults, maybe favors the supraglottic airway over the endotracheal uh, tube. First pass success for adults, except uh, or for all patients except adult medical, favors the supraglottic airway. But for adult medical, it's equivalent supraglottic versus endotracheal, and uh, and then overall success for adults, it's the equivalent supraglottic airway versus endotracheal intubation. So you can take this chart, you take that to the bank, and you've learned almost nothing from this these huge studies which are all piled together in a big systematic review. And they also rated their strength of their evidence. They said low to moderate strength of evidence. So probably the best highest quality research uh, that we have available to us in the out-of-hospital airway management realm. And it tells us very little, if anything, about what we should be doing for our patients with out-of-hospital cardiac with, with uh, out-of-hospital airway management. And this is just one microcosm of a larger challenge in doing out-of-hospital cardiac arrest research uh, in general, uh, or any kind of, as we all experience in the emergency department, the care of these critically ill and injured patients. It's very, very difficult to come up with, uh, with strong conclusions uh, uh, when you're doing this kind of research. So what do we do about that? What, is, what does that mean for us in practical reality? It, it, to me, uh, it makes me ask the question, what is the standard of care to bring it back to cardiac arrest? What is the standard of care for cardiac arrest management? When I'm talking to, uh, when I talk to lots of people, the first thing that they cite is uh, advanced cardiac life support. You've all seen this uh, algorithm. That's what's published by American Heart Association. And um, ACLS is the the term that gets thrown about. And that's what's suggested as maybe that's the standard of care for cardiac arrest. 
if you're one of the people that subscribes to that and believes that you think that that uh, ACLS sets the standard of care for cardiac arrest management, I'm going to push back a little bit. Cardiac arrest management, uh, ACLS is, uh, none of this is a criticism of ACLS or the American Heart. I actually think it's a, a really well done program for the intended purpose. And the intended purpose is to really set a standard for people who maybe don't do a training program like you all do to, to learn emergency medicine, um, but rather people who may never have to use their, uh, their cardiac arrest skills. Think about the nurse on a general care unit whose job should never involve treating a patient in cardiac arrest if everything works the way it's supposed to. But that nurse has skills in drawing up and pushing medications and can do some basic airway management and, uh, and things like that those skills would go to waste without an algorithm that they could follow in order to try to take care of those, those patients. Hence, Amer the American Heart Association's ACLS algorithm that allows a, a provider who's gone through this kind of training in order to provide treatment in a timely fashion while more experienced or, or well-trained or advanced responders are, are coming to the scene. I would argue that it's not a good fit for an emergency physician and not a good fit for a paramedic. It's highly protocolized, which makes it simple to, to implement, but it also makes it inflexible and poorly adapted to any particular patient. So when you have a patient that's in cardiac arrest in your department, or you have a patient in cardiac arrest that you're responding to as a paramedic, I would argue that we can do better than ACLS. We can, we can and should apply the evidence as we understand it. And I would argue that the standard of care for cardiac for cardiac arrest management is the same standard of care that applies to any other critically ill patient. And that is that we take the knowledge that we know based on available evidence. We try to gather as much of that information as we can from whatever sources are reasonable to apply. Um, we recognize that nobody's going to fit, nobody's, no single de clinical decision is ever going to perfectly fit with the research question that we've asked. And so we always need to figure out how to rationally apply the evidence that exists. And I, I'm not arguing against algorithms. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have algorithms. In fact, I'm in favor of algorithms more as a form of a checklist that helps us adapt the knowledge, not forget important things while we're applying this in a time-sensitive situation so that we can make the best decisions that we can for our patients um, at, at the bedside, uh, even though, like I said, it's a time-sensitive thing. We don't want to have gaps in our CPR. We don't want to miss defibrillations, all, any of those sorts of things. So having an algorithm is important. But I think we, as emergency physicians in particular, uh, and EMS physicians who are writing the guidelines for uh, the out-of-hospital environment for our paramedics and EMTs and first responders, critical care nurses, everybody else should be thinking about uh, about it in that term. And ACLS can be a starting point, but it shouldn't be an endpoint. And so if it's not the endpoint and it's not ACLS that we're going to use to decide what we should do, um, well, what should we be doing? I can't go through all of the all of the things that I would possibly consider when trying to make a decision about how to care for a patient in cardiac arrest, but I'm going to talk about a few of what I think are the more interesting approaches to cardiac arrest management, some of which actually, I think all of these uh, were studied here in Minnesota, um, at least to some degree. Well, not all of them, three of the four at least were um, publications from uh, from Minnesota. The first one is, has anybody seen this, this picture before or a picture of this vehicle before? I see some shaking heads and I see some nodding heads. So this is the University of Minnesota the, or the, the Minnesota Mobile Resuscitation Consortium's ECMO vehicle. In the, if you take a picture of the back inside this thing, it looks like a uh, uh, interventional cardiology suite. In fact, when it's staffed by one of the interventional cardiologists that's part of this ECMO team, they can do PCI in the back of this vehicle which um, I think is surprising to, to a lot of people. But this is ba the, the fact that this is being tested and being piloted in the Twin Cities area is in part because of the arrest trial and the data that came out of the University of Minnesota to suggest that ECMO uh, ECLS, so ECMO is a rescue therapy for refractory ventricular fibrillation, um, uh, can result in uh, improved neurologically intact survival. Now, there's people that argue with that study, and actually, they argue with that study's conclusions for the same reasons that all of the studies that I'm going to put up are argued about, and for the same reason that um, I just meant, for a lot of the same reasons that I just mentioned that make cardiac arrest research really, really difficult, and that's that there was bias that was um, that wasn't corrected for in the study, and that the the um, the the fact that this study was showed that survival might have actually overestimated any any effect, which is a typical 
criticism that might come from uh, from any cardiac arrest study. Whether whether there's enough evidence for you to say, hey, we should implement this in our own shop or or not, I think one could have a discussion, and it's based and that decision is based on much more than just the evidence from the arrest trial. It's also based on your ability to implement the treatment protocols similar to the arrest trial, which means you have to get people to the uh, to the cannula and on pump within 30 minutes from their cardiac arrest or, or, or to the hospital to start cannulation within 30 minutes of their cardiac arrest. And that's how they did it for all of the patients that were included. So think about the logistics involved in that. From the time of cardiac arrest in the out-of-hospital environment, they are getting an ambulance there, starting the treatment, delivering shocks, and transferring the patient by ambulance initially in the arrest trial was to the University of Minnesota's uh, East Bank campus to cannulate them onto ECMO. And they did all of that within 30 minutes. This truck that they have here is to try to expand, the, expand that radius beyond just the 30-minute radius around the University of Minnesota and maybe make it so that you could meet this, this vehicle partway and more patients might be able to benefit from that. Now, there's still huge logistics barriers to, to being able to implement this. We still don't know if this is going to be successful, but, um, but this is a work in progress in an area where there's still some, um, uh, I think, some really interesting uh, future directions. Now, who has heard of uh, ACD-ITD-CPR? Has anybody heard that uh, phrase before? I know Dr. Moore has, because I told him about it, but anybody else heard of ACD-ITD-CPR? How about if I put this picture up? Anybody, ever, anybody seen this device before? I see one nodding head here. Uh, so most people haven't heard of it. So this paper in the Lancet from 2011 showed a neurologically intact survival benefit, albeit a small one, uh, for patients that were treated with an ACD-ITD-CPR. ACD stands for active compression decompression, and the ITD stands for impedance threshold device, or in this case, in the title of the paper, they say augmentation of negative intrathoracic pressure is what they're describing they're doing. So there's two components to ACD-ITD-CPR. One of them is this suction cup device, and you can see there's a little white line with some red there. That's actually a gauge that tells you how hard you are pushing down and how much force you're delivering up as you're decompressing the chest. And so it gives you visual feedback on how your depth of CPR, but also the recoil of your CPR. And because it has a suction cup, it actually expands the thoracic volume as you're lifting up. Now, there's one of two things that can fill up that volume as you expand the chest. One of those, the one we want, is more blood to come back from the the periphery to the heart so it can be pumped forward. The other thing that could fill up the lung is, of course, air. And so in order to prevent too much air from getting into the lungs, they added this impedance threshold device, which is this little pod that you can see in this picture. It's between a bag valve mask, uh, the bag valve and the mask. Uh, it can also be attached to an advanced airway, such as a supraglottic device or to an endotracheal tube. Um, and what it does is as you're pulling back on the chest, as you're doing the decompression, that does not generate enough force to overcome the impedance threshold of this essentially one-way valve. But if you overcome it by squeezing the bag, you can overcome that relatively easily in order to inflate the lungs and ventilate the patient. So you can use these devices together, perform CPR otherwise as you, as you normally would. And this was shown in a 2011 Lancet article that was published uh, out of uh, some groups in the Twin Cities primarily um, uh, to show that, uh, that there was a survival benefit for, uh, for these patients. It's widely deployed. Uh, not that many miles from here. And most of us in this room had never heard of it. I didn't hear about it during residency and I learned about it in fellowship when I when I went up there. So is this something that we should be considering using? I don't know. It's a relatively inexpensive intervention that has some associated survival benefit, at least in this study. So um, I leave that question to you. Did you have a question? The Lucas does provide some, some suction. Now the there's some argument that um, this can provide more of that decompression because it can go further up off the chest, especially in a larger person. Um, but yes, the Lucas has a suction cup and in theory does provide some decompression as well. Yeah. So you could, and you could just 
add the impedance threshold device to to do this once you have the Lucas device in place. Um, or you, what a lot of agencies do in the Twin Cities area is they'll use that the the brand name of this device is the rescue pump. The, so the ACD portion they use that until the Lucas gets put into place. So how about heads up CPR? Anybody heard of heads up CPR? That one I think has gotten a little bit more uh, more sway and more talk within emergency departments. But um, here's the this the device that you see in this picture is called the Eligard. You can actually see made by the same manufacturer as the rescue pump and the ITD that are uh, which is called the rescue pod. So um, not advertising any of these devices intentionally, but those are the that's the picture they had in the article in resuscitation uh, to demonstrate the use of these devices. And this particular device is is shown with the um, the Lucas attached to it, but it doesn't require the Lucas. It could be used in theory with manual CPR, but it could also be use any other mechanical CPR device um, if you were to so choose. But of course, the manufacturer of those four devices would probably want you to use uh, use them together. I'm not endorsing that at all. But this um, this is another study that this one was published. Um, can't remember the year now. Uh, this was a, a few. A few uh, this publication was 2022, so this was just last year that this one came out. Um, and uh, they showed, uh, in, in order to show benefit of this, I'm a little bit skeptical of these results, but in order to show the, uh, a little bit more skeptical, I should say, than some of the others, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of all of them. But uh, in order to show the benefit, they had to show that the sooner you applied this device, the greater the impact. And so this is over time, how much time until you start their, um, they call it ACE CPR, uh, which is automated controlled elevation. So the sooner you start that, um, the effect is most prevalent after about seven minutes, then the better the um, better the outcomes. And they, uh, they suggest a variety of physiologic explanations for why that might be the case. But the purpose of this device is to, uh, this is cerebral resuscitation is the way that, the, that it's being described. Heads up so that blood can drain out of this, the, the, uh, out of the brain in order to make room for new blood to come in. And so if you keep the patient uh, uh, supine throughout the resuscitation, the theory is that the, the blood is not able to drain back out of there, which increases the need for a higher perfusion pressure to get new blood to the brain. Um, and so they, sh they were able to show some of that in, in porcine animal models, but um, it's very difficult to, um, because pigs, when you're talking about pressure in the brain and pigs are normally with their feet on the ground leaning forward, how do you simulate and compare that to when we would do chest compressions on a patient's back versus sitting upright? And so they had to dangle the pigs in interesting ways in order to show it. And, and so the applicability is, um, I'm a little bit skeptical. And this study, I think the, the results are a, a, a little bit soft, but I think it's a really interesting uh, approach. Maybe, maybe there is some value um, to that. Now, this is what, uh, do you have? There was uh, some discussion online. Yeah. Uh, first, that the ACD device is super difficult manual workout. And then Octavio had a follow-up question to that, which was, do you know anything about a mechanical ACD slash Lucas device from Europe? Um, I'm not I'm not aware of any news on the ACD Lucas from Europe. I haven't heard about that. And um, the uh, and Dr. Rossi, with the ACD comment, uh, being very challenging, it is a it is a workout for sure. Much, uh, much more tiring than than just manual CPR, which I think probably speaks a little bit to the device and more to the fact that as we tire ourselves out, the quality of our CPR tends to decline over a course of minutes, probably more than we realize when you have this device to tell you, hey, I'm not pushing hard enough and pulling off hard enough. It forces you to do some more some more work and you're less likely to find yourself leaning on the patient later in your resuscitation as you get tired with that um, with that ACD. So this, this uh, article has been getting more discussion lately, defibrillation strategies for refractory ventricular fibrillation. So um, who's here heard of double sequential defibrillation? Who's heard of vector change defibrillation? I see some thumbs up. So this study looked at a three-way comparison of standard defibrillation to vector change defibrillation to double sequential uh, external defibrillation, DSED. And they were able to show um, a, a survival benefit in their intention to treat analysis. Um, the Dr. Cheskis, who did this, um, uh, who led this study, he presented at the uh, Minnesota uh, EMS Medical Directors Conference in uh, in September 
uh, about this study. And he pointed out that um, in their, their intention to treat analysis showed a survival benefit and they had really high, um, uh, they had fairly high, but not perfect um, adherence to the protocol, but there was some inadvertent crossing over and some patients who were randomized through cluster randomization to get double sequential actually got standard defibrillation and more patients that got standard defibrillation or were randomized to standard defibrillation got double sequential. And so there were, there were some problems there. And actually the data that he showed quickly, and I didn't get a chance to review more, suggested that their um, treatment as received, so not the intention to treat analysis, but their treatment as received didn't show that same benefit, which I think is is curious to me and, and, and worth some more in, in uh, investigation. But the whole point of doing either of these, vector change or double sequential defibrillation, vector change is where we move the pads so they're in an AP location. And therefore, in theory, the ventricles should be right between those pads and we should be delivering a greater fraction of the charge directly through the ventricles as opposed to the AP and lateral um, traditional standard deployment, which um, in, in, you know may not get as much of the ventricles. Um, and then double sequential um, adds a second pad and a second defibrillator in order to um, uh, deliver two near simultaneous shocks. And actually when they deliver it in their protocol, they try to push the button simultaneously, but because it needs millisecond precision in order to actually deliver the shocks at the same time, they end up being uh, you know, within a second of each other, but not truly simultaneous. They didn't see any damage to defibrillators uh, or anything like that happen in this study. So I think this is really, uh, really promising. And again, this is a study that I think looks at those patients who are most likely to survive um, based on the fact that they're likely witnessed, but more so that their ventricular fibrillation and gives them a chance to um, uh, gives them a chance to uh, survive if they're in that 50 something percent who might not survive. Um, so the other, the one thing that I think is really important to talk about with this study though, is the word refractory. Um, this study and in the way he did this, um, they assumed that these patients who, if they were still in ventricular fibrillation at the end of their two minutes, when they did another pulse check, they assumed that they, that that first shock had not worked. They might be right, but how would you tell the difference between refractory and recurrent ventricular fibrillation? I'm going to argue that we should think about defibrillation a lot more like we think about cardioversion. So let's imagine you're going to deliver a shock to a patient and you want to know whether your shock survived or not. Now we're talking about a cardioversion patient. So you're at the bedside, you're not doing chest compressions. You've got them up on the monitor. One of two things might happen, right? You might shock them, find that you're in a sinus rhythm and well, it might be successful and stay. But if you're unsuccessful, you might have them in a put them back into a sinus rhythm like you hoped, and then they could go back into a ventricular fibrillation or into a fibrillation. Or you could shock them and nothing would happen. They just stay in ventricular fibrillation the whole time. How would you tell the difference if you're doing CPR the whole time and now you can't see what's going on in there? And so I would argue that there probably are several patients out there that are in refractory cardiac arrest who a defibrillation shock is not changing their rhythm. It's either not being delivered through the heart um, adequately. So maybe vector change DSED is the solution. They may not be getting adequate defibrillating conditions. So they need better oxygenation. They need better blood flow. They need to have all of those sorts of things optimized in order to improve their chances of having a, a successful shock. Um, or yeah, there you go, Dr. Hyde. That's great. Put it, put him on um, uh, TEE. That's perfect. Um, uh, and then you can find out for sure. Um, or it might be the case that um, we're shocking them. And before we finish our cycle of CPR, they're going back into ventricular fibrillation. And um, how could we possibly know if, if that's a, a thing that could happen? Well, there's a few papers from this institution. You'll see Dr. Hess and Dr. White's name on both of these papers here. Um, they, um, they found first recurrent ventricular fibrillation in one of their studies using AED data. So they pulled all of the AED data from witnessed cardiac arrests here in Rochester and looked at that data um, the, to see how long it took after an initial shock before they could see uh, uh, they could see evidence that the patient had gone back into ventricular fibrillation for the patients who had some um, some, ch some change in their rhythm. And they found it pretty frequently. And in most cases, this was happening well before the 120 seconds before your next pulse check in a two-minute cycle. 
And then they also, um, in another study, showed that um, when we're delivering these defibrillations, we're getting success rates that are uh, almost 90% success rates when we're defibrillating patients. And so why is it that we see 90% success rate in defibrillating patients, and yet less than less than 50%, 40% of our patients are having a sustained return of spontaneous circulation in, in these patients. And to me, this speaks to some of these patients being refractory and some of them being recurrent. And that's something I think we, we need to take into account when we're managing um, VF, VF patients in cardiac arrest. So I would say that we should treat VF more as a lethal arrhythmia. In fact, if we thought of ventricular fibrillation as a lethal arrhythmia, and treated it as such, as opposed to thinking of it as a type of cardiac arrest, I think we might do better for our patients. And I'm talking about focusing on things like defibrillating them. I'm focusing, focusing on delivering antiarrhythmics and then providing that other supportive care, which in this case is the good quality chest compressions, um, oxygenation and ventilation, and in the appropriate patients, things like volume expansion and, and those sorts of things. And so if we look at... Um, which begs the question to me about epinephrine, one of the first medications that we're delivering in cardiac arrest, if we follow those ACLS rhythms, um, where does my suggestion leave epinephrine? Well, first of all, there's no evidence to associate epinephrine with neurologically intact survival. There's lots of evidence to suggest it can be associated with the return of spontaneous circulation, but not with neurologically intact survival. And so um, in, in my own practice, that tells me I, maybe it's not as useful for the valuable endpoint that I'm seeking. And I want you to think about how much epinephrine you're using and what its effects would be on the body or more importantly, the cerebral vasculature when we're delivering uh, cardiac arrest dose epinephrine. So we're giving one milligram, a thousand micrograms every three to five minutes, which if you converted that into an infusion, that's 200 to 300 micrograms per minute, which is two to three times what you might use if you're using a microgram per kilogram per minute, a high dose infusion of epinephrine. And not only that, but when we deliver it using an infusion, we get up to a therapeutic level and we stay consistent as opposed to riding this roller coaster of epinephrine when we push every three to five minutes, this high dose epinephrine. And so I ask myself what that does to the cerebral vasculature, and I'm worried that that's going to vasoconstrict the cerebral vasculature and, and infarct the brain, which is not what we want to have, have happen. And I think that explains why the literature shows no increase in neurologically intact survival, despite the improvement in ROSC when we use epinephrine for, um, for cardiac arrest in those big one milligram bolus doses. In my own practice, even here in this emergency department, um, if I find somebody's in a, a, a epinephrine dependent uh, return of spontaneous circulation. So I push some epinephrine and they get a pulse back. I put them on an infusion at a high dose. And if I can get a pulse back with that, then continue to treat them. And if I can't, then I know that it's, uh, that it's futile to do more care. So where does that leave us and how do we do things um, uh, in Mayo Clinic Ambulance Service? Here is a uh, a snapshot of an algorithm that we have in our guidelines to uh, help uh, guide our paramedics as they're taking care of these patients in VF and pulseless VT. We have a prioritized list of, of interventions. And what we ask the medics to do is to go through that list from top to bottom and make sure that they have the top thing checked before they move to the next thing and, and move on down. And so compressions, passive oxygenation, um, although I, uh, that's something that... Um, uh, depending on which of our sites that's at, that might not even come into play. For example, here in Rochester, the fire department is typically on scene, and they've oftentimes in these cases put an eye gel in before we've even arrived. And so um, we oftentimes can skip past that one. Defibrillation, that's the highest priority. And then uh, the Lucas device in order to free up hands in order to do other things. Uh, IV and IO access, consider an advanced airway if it's uh, if it's necessary or indicated, um, amiodarone or lidocaine. And then the last thing on that list would be epinephrine if, if uh, nothing else is, is working. Um, we also do one minute cycles of CPR in order to decrease the chances that we're missing a recurrent ventricular fibrillation and try and shorten the time that that patient's in VF if we are having um, uh, successful shocks. Um, and then watching for less than five seconds to see if there is a successful shock. And if they're right back into VFib, back to compressions and doing um, everything we can to improve defibrillating conditions. If they start uh, having an organized rhythm, uh, then we'll uh, we'll treat that appropriately and start doing our 
post-ROSC care. Um, then, um, yeah, Molly, I'll, your question about naloxone. Um, there's a little bit of controversy about naloxone. I personally don't use a lot of naloxone in cardiac arrest patients um, because uh, in terms of overdose, if you have a patient, uh, if they've gone into cardiac arrest because of an opioid overdose, that's kind of, they're on the final common pathway and um, we, we'll fix the overdose by doing the airway management and ventilating them in terms of their respiratory depression. And, um, and the chances that the naloxone will be really helpful at um, restoring them into a, a, a perfusing heart rate or any of those other things, I think is, is fairly low. Um, now, when you're at that point and you think this could be an overdose, is there any harm in doing it? No. Could there be some benefit? As Dr. Steinkritzer would tell you, uh, naloxone is a general analeptic and 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 can potentially reverse some of the opioid-associated hypotension if they have a particularly um, non-hemodynamically stable opioid on board. So there could be some theoretic benefit, but um, I don't perceive it as being enough to overcome the, um, the other uh, interventions. Yeah, thank. There was another question from Octavio going back to the dual sequential defibrillation. Do those protocols have two sets of pads applied right off the bat or only if there's refractory or Yeah, the, the biggest okay. challenge is that uh, in order to, to so A, most people aren't willing to just put two pads on right from the beginning and do this, partly because of the availability of a second defibrillator. So it's not just that you need two pads, you need two defibrillators in order to do double sequential defibrillation, but also because we know that there's a pretty good chance, 40 plus percent chance that with traditional defibrillation that your patient's going to have a return of spontaneous circulation. And so pulling a team member away to prepare and operate a second defibrillator may not be beneficial. So the protocol in that study that I showed was, I think, after the third defibrillation, or it may have been the third defibrillation, that, that they started using double sequential if they were randomized into that group. Another question that I guess it's more on my mind, mm -hmm. in wide complex PEA, where would bicarb and calcium fall in here? I'll talk about that in a oh, few minutes. Got it. Yeah. So... Um, we made this change that I have on the screen right now, we implemented at Mayo Clinic Ambulance Service in June of 2011. And we looked at some pre and post data. Um, and actually uh, Dr. Ferguson, our EMS fellow, just presented this at a Mayo um, Youth Research Symposium this past weekend. And we showed that um, with, with raw data, uh, our survival to discharge um, odds ratio was 1.76. Um, and with uh, adjusted for um, uh, uh, our various uh, confounders, uh, 2.39 uh, uh, odds ratio, so twice as likely to survive. Now, I, for all the same reasons that I said before about cardiac arrest research, I'm skeptical that this you can draw very strong conclusions on this. One of the biggest confounders is the fact that in order to make these changes, we did a ton of education on cardiac arrest and we've reviewed it a lot. So could this just be the effect of more cardiac arrest education rather than any specific changes we made? I think that's, that's just as plausible, but this is certainly encouraging that some of the things that we're doing might be having a, a good a good impact. And um, there's at least no evidence that they're having a negative impact. Um, and so I'm I'm optimistic about that. Now, Bank, you mentioned um, PEA. PEA is a change that we've made more recently and we've addressed a little bit uh, more separately. We, we approach um, PEA and VF separately, of course. And um, what we've trained, uh, uh, trained our paramedics on is recognizing uh, the rhythm that's on the monitor when you're in PEA is critical, is probably some of the most useful information you might have at your fingertips in determining what if any reversible cause there is and targeting that. So a narrow complex is uh, tachycardia uh, PEA is more likely to represent a metabolically normal cardiac environment. And it suggests things like obstructive or hypovolemic shock. So target hemorrhage, tension, tamponade, those sorts of things um, first. Wide complex on the other hand implies a metabolically abnormal cardiac environment. It doesn't perfectly tell you that of course. Um, and it suggests that maybe things like cardiogenic shock, distributive shock, uh, metabolic derangements like hyperkalemia, hypoglycemia, hypoxemia, acidemia, those sorts of things as being the cause. Now, none of this is perfect, of course. And in fact, you could, I'm sure, easily think of the example of the patient with a bundle branch block at baseline who goes into cardiac arrest due to uh, attention pneumothorax. Well, yeah, they're going to have a wide complex because that's what they always have. But 
this is kind of the best first information to respond to this. And so what do we do with a, a wide complex PEA? Uh, maybe to answer your question directly is we get them on compressions because we know we need to give that supportive care in order for our interventions to have a chance. Get them on the Lucas to free up hands, get the IV IO access and start with a fluid bolus. And actually we put epinephrine fairly early for these wide complex PEAs. And, and part of the reason for that is because um, we know that especially a wide complex bradycardia is in terms of outcomes, probably the same thing as asystole. And so um, I use epinephrine in patients in asystole and wide complex um, bradycardia PEA, uh, because if I can't get a perfusing rhythm out of epinephrine, uh, and at a large dose, then I, I know that that patient isn't going to have a good outcome. There's I, Unless I can identify some other reversible cause, they're probably far enough down the final common pathway that they're not, um, not going to survive. Um, we asked them to consider airway management and then consider based on um, uh, what other information they can gather from the patient, things like calcium for hyperkalemia, D50 for hypoglycemia, bicarb for acidemia or a tricyclic overdose, and then naloxone for opioid toxicity. And so in these patients, we asked them to look for some clues and then very early, as early as they can get to on this checklist, try those things. Um, I, I, I think if we do all of the initial things, try epinephrine, try another epinephrine, keep doing chest compressions and, and all these sorts of things, and then 10 minutes into the arrest, we try giving D50 for hyper, hypoglycemia, it's probably way too late for that to have much, much impact. So I want, uh, I want them to do these things early. Now, the other thing that we say is, like I mentioned, what if you have a pre-existing bundle branch block and then you go into a, a wide complex PEA? On our uh, guideline for wide complex, we ask them to consider, could this be think of the narrow complex causes as well, but think of them second. And so that brings me to what do we do for our narrow complex PEA? Again, it's compressions, passive oxygenation, Lucas IVIO, fluid bolus, because hypovolemia uh, could be a cause for our critical care teams who have blood available. We ask them to consider blood if there's a chance this could be hemorrhagic shock um, or a, a, an anemia. And we ask them to think about pneumothorax, tamponade, and hypovolemia. And um, address those with targeted interventions if there's a reason to think that those could be the causes. Um, the one other thing that we started treating, uh, uh, teaching our paramedics is, is what if there's a pseudo PEA? What if you have a patient, especially the patient who's um, maybe they, for whatever reason, we can't find a pulse, but there is some pulsatile forward blood flow. We just can't feel it for whatever reason. We have ultrasound available on our helicopters and our fixed wing teams. So our critical care transport teams have access to ultrasound. Um, hopefully soon our community paramedics who sometimes will respond to 911 calls, including cardiac arrest, will be able to use their ultrasound for this indication as well. Someday in the future, I want us to have ultrasound on our ambulances so we can ask this question. But there might be other things that can, other context clues that this could be pseudo PA that should prompt you to say, maybe I should take my patient to the emergency department. A persistent narrow complex PEA, especially at a, a faster rate, a reassuring entitled CO2, some sort of signs of life. Um, you should consider that this could be like profound shock. We ask them to start an epinephrine or norepinephrine drip and transport. Um, and, and so if that patient arrives in your emergency department, what does that mean to you? Well, um, I'll start over on this side. They might be taking them to you, not because they think there's a really good chance of survival or something else like that, but because something happened that made them wonder, could this be pseudo PEA? You might put the ultrasound on, see no cardiac activity and say, no, this isn't pseudo PEA. We can probably pronounce them. Or you might find there is, and you might be able to take the next steps. The other things that you should know about this is that um, we're probably using less epinephrine and you might find patients coming in in cardiac arrest that are on an epinephrine infusion for some of the reasons that we described. And also, if you ask how many shocks we delivered and we say seven, don't multiply that by two and say, oh, you've been working this for 14 minutes. We might've just been working that patient for seven minutes with how, how frequently we're delivering shocks. Thank you. I got a, a question online. Can you distinguish pulseless VTAC algorithm from PEA, wide complex PEA? Um, uh, yes. So if it's a wide complex tachycardia, we'll treat it as ventricular tachycardia. If it's a wide complex, but not fast enough to be ventricular tachycardia, then we'll treat it as a, as a wide complex PEA. So that's my discussion about a hospital cardiac arrest. I hope, um, I hope it's been helpful and I hope you have questions either to ask now or in the future. Um, and, uh, I, I enjoy talking about it. So thank you. That's it. That's a wrap. It's all done for a couple weeks, of course, until we kick off season three of the show. 
Thank you, Aaron. I know that talk sparked lots of questions and discussions. It was incredibly well presented, and that's why we curated it to have it here, and especially to close out the show. Maybe it will spark similar discussions and questions over dinner tables through the holidays. To that end, Alex and I wish you a very happy holiday, and we thank you for the incredible gift of listening to us. We never in our wildest dreams thought you and so many others would tune in. We just wanted to collect our musing somewhere and try something new. Thank you for making this podcast, this show, an incredibly rewarding experience for us. 2024 feels filled with opportunity, hope, and optimism to me, and I hope it is the same for you. So bring on the holidays. This is Alex and Venk signing off for 2023. The Always On EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. 